Morning, everyone. Morning. Um, there's quite a lot that could be said about this passage, so I'm just giving you a heads up now. I, it may seem like an abrupt stop at the end because I might not get to the, where I think I want to get to. Uh, well, no, I think I'll get to where I want to get to, but maybe not to the end of what's written down here. So we'll just play it by ear, and I promise your dinners won't burn. So um, if you've got a Bible with you, it'd be great if you could turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I don't know whether it's just me, but um, I've got two young sons, and um, episodes like this happen in our house. So I say to them, oh, look, you've been playing with all these toys. Why don't you help Daddy pack them away? And they say, well... Actually, I'd prefer not to, Daddy, or rather no, um, because I've got something more interesting to do, like, will you play this game with me? Say, well, I'll play that game with you once you've helped me put these things away. Well, I don't really want to, and so on. And so what I find then is that things quickly escalate until it gets to the point where I'm saying, right, I've put most of them away. Any that are left on the floor in two minutes' time are going either in the wheelie bin, charity shop, to children who actually care, you know, that kind of thing. And before I know it, it's gone from this nice little, oh, yeah, we're going to play this game if you help me pack away, to now they've got no toys left and the wheelie bin is overflowing. So maybe it's just me. Um, but, but I think that we see in this passage how Paul handles that type of situation a bit better. Um, so we'll, we'll look at that in a minute. But just to set the scene, this summer we're looking at 1 Thessalonians, a letter written by Paul and Silas and Timothy to the young church in the city of Thessalonica, uh, which we have on a map here. And um, we know from uh, bits and pieces that we, we read in scripture that uh, Paul has to flee the city and a while later he sends Timothy back to see how the church are doing. And uh, Timothy spends some time there, um, and then he goes and he meets Paul in Corinth. And Timothy brings back a report about how the church is doing. And uh, as part of that report, he raises a few concerns, including the thorny issue of sexual immorality, which is the main theme of today's sermon. So, some nice dinner conversation for you later. Um, And basically, Paul spends the first half of this letter um, describing how amazing he thinks the Thessalonians are, the fact that they're so special to God, that Paul loves them so much. Um, He he reminds them of the visit that they, they had to Thessalonica and how they had to flee. He talks to them about suffering and how that's part of the Christian walk and therefore don't be worried about it, just expect it and and dig in. Um, don't be discouraged. Then he says, again, he loves them loads and how he misses them. And then he prays for them. And the end of chapter three, he prays for them to have this ever increasing and abounding love for one another and for all. And that they would be holy and blameless and ready for the return of Jesus. So that's kind of where we're up to in the story. And then I think in chapter four, we see a bit of a step change in what Paul says. And this is where he begins to address some of the concerns which have come to his attention, partly raised by Timothy's report. And so he asks them to basically pick up their toys, to sort themselves out, to to get things in order to live right. And he asks them to do it more and more. 
So they're doing it and he asks them to do it more and more. So there's a bit of a change of tone. But also, thrown into the context, I think that when Timothy comes back to Paul in Corinth, Timothy's carrying a letter with him from the church in Thessalonica. You see, in those days, it wasn't just you sit down at your computer and send off an email and it's there. Actually, it's a big deal to get some communication from this place to that place. And so you should never waste a messenger. And so they go, right, there's some things that we want to ask Paul. I mean, Timothy's great, but... But Paul, that's who we, we want his wisdom because he taught us when he was here. And so they, they send a letter and they raise a few questions. And I think there are three questions in 1 Thessalonians that Paul responds to. And we'll hopefully, if we have time, look at the first one of those today. It's about what does it mean to love the brothers and sisters in the church? That's the first question they ask about. The second question is, what about those Christians who've died? And We'll look at that next week. That's in verse 13 of chapter 4. And the third question that he responds to is, and when is the Lord going to return? And I think those questions have come. So Timothy's come with some concerns, observations that he's noticed and, and he wants to kind of teach them. And then there's this letter which says, and Paul, please help us on these things. And he responds to them. And we'll look at those over the course of the next couple of weeks. So today... The sermon is about the first half of chapter four, and we'll be looking at the first of these concerns that, uh, that Paul responds to and this first question. So I'm going to read uh, verses one to twelve of chapter four of one Thessalonians. And the words will appear on the screen. Finally, then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I reckon it would be good if we prayed. Father God, we thank you for the privilege we have this morning of opening up your word. And we thank you that it is a timeless word. It is an enduring word. It is a perfect word. And we thank you for the truth which is contained in it. And so we pray, Father, that as we look at these few verses, that you would speak to our hearts Father, may each of us be open to your Holy Spirit. 
May we have ears that listen carefully to you. And Father, may we encounter you this morning. Amen. So, the chapter begins with the word finally. And we, I mean, Paul's written 43 verses, and he says finally, because he's only got 46 verses left. I quite like that. And uh, he says, finally, we ask and urge you. What he's bringing here is an exhortation to the church. He's not just asking a kind of, will you put your toys away? He's urging them. He's beseeching them. He's pleading with them. He's entreating them, imploring them to change, to be increasingly like Jesus, to take these instructions seriously. And the reason is that the aim is that they walk close to God. That's what he says in verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you do so more and more. The aim is that they walk close to God. The aim is that they look like Jesus. Paul's not content, you see, for the Thessalonians just to do okay, to kind of bumble along and be all right. What he wants is a radical discipleship, a wholehearted commitment to their saviour. And he talks in verse 3 about God's will for them being sanctification. Now, at the moment of conversion, a lot of stuff happens. A lot of stuff. And we spend the rest of our lives kind of beginning to figure out what actually happened when we got saved. But we, we get reborn, born again is the the phrase that we use. Or recreated, we become new creations at that moment of conversion. We are saved. We're forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. We are adopted. We become children of God. All in that moment. All at that point when we're saved. But there are two words that we we sometimes talk about and sometimes don't define clearly that I just want to pause on for a minute. Because also at that moment of conversion, we're justified. Now, to be justified is to be declared righteous. You often may hear the kind of justified, it means just as if I'd never sinned. That's how we're viewed. We're justified. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's what it means to be justified. And that happens at conversion, when we're saved. But at that moment when we become a justified person, we begin to be a sanctified person as well. And sanctification is this process of being made holy. We don't need to be made righteous because we're already declared righteous. But we need to be made holy. That's not a completed thing. And so sanctification begins at that point and then goes on happening throughout our lives, or it should. Whereas justification is a a done deal. No one can add or subtract anything to their status of being justified before God. But sanctification is this ongoing process. It's this beginnings of a lifetime journey of increasingly looking like Jesus of becoming holy. 
I find it really, I haven't sung that last song, Purify My Heart, for, I don't know, 15 years or something. I choose to be holy, set apart for you. That's basically sanctification. Okay? It's that process where we choose to follow in the way Jesus uh, calls us to walk. And so Paul here, as he does this kind of gear change in his letter, in verse 3 writes, for this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. It's God's will for us. And we then conform ourselves to the will of God. He desires for us to be holy and he helps us to do that as well. So it's not a kind of works-based thing, but it's about a decision to daily follow after Jesus. So we read in other parts of scripture, be holy as I am holy. From Leviticus. And Peter repeats it. What he's saying is you should act as God acts. This is what God's like. Be like that. That's what sanctification is. Looking increasingly like our father in heaven. And Paul talks about this a lot, and uh, we'll just look at one uh, particular example. So if you've got a Bible and got Romans chapter 6 in it, uh, which you should have, um, <laughs> just check it. I mean, some people, this is controversial stuff, but yeah. Um, so um, chapter 6 of Romans, verse 19. For just as you used to present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to do anything linked to righteousness. You were free, free to sin. Therefore, what benefit did you then derive, were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin, hallelujah, and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. That's pretty good. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you see that when Paul describes sanctification, he describes a putting off of the old stuff. You used to do those things. You used to sell your members to do sin. And now you sell your members to pursue righteousness, to do the things of God. That's sanctification and that leads to eternal life. So the thing is that being saved is, is done and dusted. We're saved. We're justified. We're adopted. All those things. But then the evidence of a saved life is one, a, a life lived in increasing degrees of sanctification. That we look increasingly like Jesus. An imitation of the Father. And if you're worried that that sounds quite heavy and now he's going to go on and talk about sexual immorality and so there's going to be a, a whole list of rules that, that are drawn up, well, you're wrong. Because actually, sanctification is a partnership. It's a partnership that begins at conversion and continues by grace throughout our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And so we read later on in the, the last bit of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5 and verse 23, says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Who's the onus on here? God does the sanctifying. He's going to do it entirely. Yes, we've got a part to play because there's a partnership in the spirit. In 2 Thessalonians, so the sequel, maybe we'll look at that next summer, but um, the sequel to 1 Thessalonians, and he said, Paul describes sanctification by the Spirit. This is the work of God in us, just as salvation is, just as adoption is, just as justification is, so sanctification. It's a work of God in our lives. And so in that passage that we read, if you read verses seven and eight, it says, for God hasn't called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, you can't be made holy unless the Holy Spirit is helping you do it. That's one of his jobs. And so I want to, although we're talking about behavior, we're talking about kind of ethics if you like today underlying it all is this sanctification which is this decision but that is a work of God's grace in our lives it's only through his working in us that we look like Jesus and so I would summarize sanctification as being a daily discipleship decision for each of us that graciously is empowered by the purifying presence of the spirit That's what sanctification is. Daily deciding to follow hard after Jesus, but empowered by the purifying presence of the Holy Spirit. And so once Paul has said that sanctification is God's will for us, he gives us this example of sexual immorality. And I think this is because Timothy has reported back that there's some dubious things going on in this church. They haven't quite got it when it comes to this area. You might think, well, okay, first century Thessalonica, yeah. Well, 21st century Britain is not dissimilar. You see, this is such a key area of life. Very, very difficult to to kind of weave our way through in the current climate, particularly. It affects, sexuality affects every person in every society that has ever lived. It's just... Because it's part of who we are. Young, old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. Doesn't matter. And I think it's a battleground because the enemy loves to get in and wreak havoc with this. He loves to rob what was there in Eden. And so we have to work it out. We have to check that our lives line up with, with what scripture says. And I think it's very, very easy to overcomplicate it. I think it's also very easy to oversimplify it, and I might be in danger of doing that this morning. But I think the Bible is very clear. Here it goes. Verse 3. Abstain from sexual immorality. There we go. (laughs) It's clear, isn't it? The word for sexual immorality that's used here is the word pornea which obviously we get words like pornography and so on from in, our, in, in English. But that word encompasses a whole range of different behaviours. And it includes adultery. Now, adultery is when a married person has sex with a person who is not their spouse. 
And of course, we know in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus expands that thinking to say, actually, it's anyone who looks lustfully at someone else. So that's adultery. That's included in this sexual immorality word. But so is the word fornication. And fornication is when an unmarried person has sex with someone else. So it, it kind of includes that. There's more as well, but for the moment, we'll just kind of think about it in those two terms, adultery and fornication. And when we think about the context in Thessalonica, as in much of the Greek and Roman world at that time, was generally acceptable, you're going to love this, generally acceptable for a married man to sleep with women other than his wife. As long as they weren't married. So prostitutes, mistresses, concubines, slave girls. It was generally, not everywhere, but generally acceptable. And it was generally not acceptable for a married woman to sleep with anyone other than her husband. It's about the family line. You can't have any kind of impurity. It doesn't matter what the guy does, but actually the wife is crucial. You know, you need to know that that, that the offspring is in the family line. So that's one to chew over over dinner. Um, but in, in the city as well, remember it was this cosmopolitan city with toings and froings along that, that road which ran along and there were all these different influences and there was a lot of sexual misconduct, immorality linked to false religions. So temple prostitutes, uh, fertility gods and goddesses and the associated fertility rites, all that kind of stuff was going on. That's what these Christians are saved out of. So that's what's going on around them. And when I look at our society, I think we are sex obsessed. As a society, we in, in the 21st century West, obsessed by it. It's everywhere. You cannot escape it. And therefore, Paul's command instruction to abstain from sexual immorality is as relevant today in our society as it ever has been. If we're going to do what the will of God is for us, which is to be sanctified. So when I was growing up, um, we the access to explicit materials, shall we say, as, as far as I can remember, uh, was quite limited. So top shelf magazines were generally on the top shelf, out of sight, out of view. But, you know, it was kind of a, a titter around the room and ooh, ooh, if a lad managed to smuggle a page three picture into registration in the morning, you know, that kind of thing. There were four TV channels. We didn't have a TV, so I don't know what was on them. But my understanding is it was quite limited. And the world is different now. And I, I don't think it's... I think that the big thing that's different is that stuff is readily available. You've probably, most of you, got a phone in your pocket that connects to the internet. You could be looking at stuff within seconds that is inappropriate, explicit, etc. It's just there, available all the time. And it's normalised as well. So I don't know whether you noticed, but at the start of July, a report came out about the, the police were releasing figures as to the number of issues they dealt with amongst young people of sexting, which is this kind of sharing of explicit images um, 
via phones and, and social media and so on. And the numbers were astronomical and the ages were scary. Eight-year-olds mentioned, 12-year-olds. Not the majority, but still doing this kind of thing. It's just normalized. And so we've got to help our young people with this. And we've got to help each other with this as well. Because this is not just a young people problem. This is what we're called into. This is the context in which Jubilee Church, Solihull, is called to be holy. We are the people of God in this society and we're called to be sanctified. We're called to be holy. And I think the biblical teaching is clear. If you read the whole of scripture, as far as I can see, the only sexual relationship which is talked about in positive terms in the whole of scripture is the one between husband and wife. Now you can argue what is or isn't allowed. As far as I see it, the only sexual relationship that I see talked about positively in scripture is that within husband and wife marriage. All other sexual behaviour is condemned. So yes, it's complicated and yes, it's simple. (laughs) The Bible essentially allows for two states, if you like. It allows for heterosexual marriage. And the fact that I have to insert the word heterosexual says something about where our society is at the moment. It allows for heterosexual marriage and sex within that context. And it allows for an unmarried state of celibacy. And both of those states are godly. They are good states. Both of them talked about positively in scripture. And... What Paul then describes is he, this is the biblical teaching, and then he describes two groups of people in verses 4 and 5. I don't know whether you noticed it, but it says, he, he first of all talks about each of you in verse 4. So each of you, so abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to, uh, where's my words gone? Uh, so each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honour. In the NASB, it says how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honour. So that's the first group. Each of you, the church, this is what you're to do. You're to control your bodies in holiness and honour. And then the other group, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God. So that's the other group, Gentiles. Lustful passion is how he articulates their sexual immorality, their sexual behaviour. And for this, I find 2 Timothy chapter 2 a helpful commentary. I think it's just a bit clearer in the kind of emphasis. So 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 20 says, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some to honour and some to dishonour. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honour, sanctified, that word again, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith and love with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A vessel for honour. Using your body. Sex, Sex and sexual immorality and things about that are essentially a use of your body. And the teaching of scripture is you use your bodies for godly purposes. 
You use them for holy purposes. You abstain from sexual immorality. Why? Because you're called to holiness and honour. And they're the watchwords. Holiness and honour. And so we flee from lusts and pursue righteousness. I'm going to paint a slightly extreme contrast here. Do you remember Ashley Madison? Okay, so none of you are the... One of the 54 million members who've, uh, who've uh, got accounts with them. Ashley Madison hit the headlines a few years ago. They're a company based in Canada that uh, basically are aimed at married people who want to have affairs. And they hit the headlines because they were hacked and details were released. And shock horror, families fell apart because people who were having these affairs uh, were, were kind of revealed in the media. Their tagline was, life's short, have an affair. They're not really kind of, you know, pulling any punches, hiding what they're doing. Since 2015, they've had a bit of a rebrand. And um, now instead of the logo being um, a silhouette of a woman with like a a large wedding ring here, um, it's now just two people having a kiss. And um, the, the tagline now is... Find your moment. And I think both of those taglines illustrate a key issue in this area and the world and the way the Gentiles, if you like, uh, act. You see, life's short, have an affair. Life's only short if you think this is all there is. And scripture doesn't view life as this is all there is on earth. Because it's in the context of eternity. And so if we have eternity in mind, then this life is short, have an affair, has a hollow ring to it. Because actually it's about what is beyond. It's about living a life now an increasing sanctification. Why? Because one day I'm going to be wedded to Jesus. But similarly, find your moment. I mean... That basically is concerned with one person, you. Find your moment. There's no concern here for the other human being with whom you're going to commit this affair. There's nothing here about the long-term commitment that sexual union actually means in the context of marriage. This is your moment, presumably because it satisfies your need for your passion's your lusts to be satisfied. And that's the message of the world on this. Doesn't matter how you act, be careful, be careful, but it's your choice. And be satisfied. Live life to the full, find your moment. Life short. And one of the commentators, when commenting on this, wrote this phrase, which I think is really helpful. He just says, what determines the sexual conduct of pagans is their desire to satisfy their sexual passions. But the guide to Christian sexuality is knowing God and longing to serve him. That's the direction of our affections. Holiness and honour. There's no holiness and honour in find your moment. Have an affair. And the reality is that our sexual immorality affects other people. 
The person I sleep with here is possibly someone else's future spouse. So it not only affects that person, it affects that family and so on. Similarly, it affects what I do as well. And so Paul writes and in verse 6 no, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in this matter. When you commit sexual immorality, you're defrauding other people of something that should be special, something that should be um, in, within the context of marriage. Defrauding his brother in this matter, and these are scary words, because the Lord is the avenger in all things. Just as we told you before and solemnly warned you. This is a serious matter. Sin is a serious matter. God takes it seriously. And there's never an excuse for sin. And you can kind of imagine how in, the, in the, this early church they've kind of suddenly got this command to love each other. To develop deep friendships, deep bonds with each other. And maybe, I don't know, I'm just, this is me speculating. But maybe the freedom of expression that these Christians now have, the fact that there's no law. So any who were saved out of a Jewish background, there's no law. So those strict parameters have now been removed and it's kind of a, a dizzying sense of space. What is allowed? What isn't allowed? I don't have to sacrifice to, idol, to animals for, for sins anymore. I don't have to do this, that and the other. The Ten Commandments, are they relevant, not relevant? The fact that social distinctions now are are seemingly unimportant. It used to matter if he was a Jew and I was a Gentile or a Greek. It used to matter if if she was a woman and I was a man, or he was a freed man and I was a slave, or he was a Roman citizen and I wasn't. These things used to matter. They don't matter now. Because in Christ, we're brothers and sisters The family has come together. The fact that maybe in these more intimate settings of of the home where they met, rather than a larger meeting place, that they meet together in homes and food is shared. And they pray for each other and they worship together and they, they, they prophesy over each other. And there's just a growing intimacy amongst the people here. Maybe in that context, inappropriate relationships began to arise. And this is what Timothy notices. He says, look, Paul, we've got an issue here. They, they kind of get in. Something's really right. And they get in some things. They're getting into trouble. Maybe. I'm speculating. But I think it's plausible. But whatever the context and whatever the, the kind of mishmash of things that are going on here, there is never, ever an excuse for sin. Never. Never. And Paul's urging here is for them to excel in love and holiness and honour, to do so more and more. And the call is exactly the same for us. Exactly the same for us. And we must guard our hearts. We must guard our relationships. We must guard our purity. Which We must guard our sanctification. Because in our walks with God, we're to be sanctified. And we're to do this more and more in ever-increasing measure. So, 
sanctification and the particular example of sexual immorality is what Paul talks about here in verses 1 to 8. And then he goes on to answer one of their questions in verse 9. And he says, Now as to the love of the brothers and sisters, brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Do you know what? I think that if there were a Paul for us, and he were to write to us, there would be some things he would write to us about and say, I don't need to write to you about that. You do well in that. You do well. You welcome the presence of the Spirit. You do well at that. You love each other. You do well at that. You're working hard to build family, to build a culture that honours, that you're passionate about my presence, that you're beginning to take these courageous steps and you're living together as family. Do this more and more. I think he would say those things to us. And I think he probably would also say, and by the way, you might want to think about this area as well. Why? Because we're not yet perfect. But I just love his tone here. He's just told them about the sexual immorality amongst you. Sort it out. It's about holiness and honour. God takes this seriously. So should you. He's given you the Holy Spirit so you can live holy. Now, you asked me about loving each other. I've got no need to write to you about that. I find the fact they even ask is quite interesting. But I guess maybe they looked around. Maybe they saw some of these things we've just talked about. See that things aren't you know, quite spot on. They've certainly got some issues around the, the way they, they deal with leadership. Paul will pick up on that in a couple of weeks' time. There are some people who aren't working. There are um, some people who are quite difficult to help in the church. It's clear if you read chapter 5. They've got some really big questions about the role of prophecy. You are going to, aren't you, Paul? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, they've got some questions about the role of prophecy within the church. So there are some things going on. And they're saying, Paul, we're trying to work this out. We don't know quite what it means to love one another. He says, yeah, you do. And I'll tell you why you do. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. I love that. Love that. This isn't a kind of three-week class that you sit down and go, right, lesson one, how to love. Handshake, progress to hug. Or, you know, it's, it's not like that. This is something that's in them because they've been taught by God to love. And remember, of course, that this, these instructions come in the context of Paul having just prayed for them in verse 12 of chapter 3 that the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as you also do. So there's already this love that's kind of pouring out of them across the city, across the region of Macedonia, that it's kind of echoing all around the region as we looked at in chapter 1. And the love that's being described is this fraternal or sibling love. You'll notice that I'm sometimes using brothers because that's what our translations say, but sometimes saying brothers and sisters. Actually, that's what it means. It's brothers and sisters. Fifteen times in 1 Thessalonians, he addresses them as brothers and sisters. It's only a tiny letter. 
The emphasis is on family. The emphasis is on loving each other. And my love for you, each of you, should be the way a brother loves his brothers and sisters. It should be an authentic, genuine, heartfelt, deep love that I have for you, trying to catch all your eyes. You have to do that to me as well, though. But we celebrate each other's successes. We applaud their courage. We grieve with them. We celebrate with them. We honour them for the work of God in their lives and for who they are. And Paul says, there's no need for me to write to you about it. Why? Because you're doing it already. Oh, he says, by the way, but do so more and more. Yeah, I don't need to write to you because you're doing it. Do it so more and more. And then he goes on to talk about work. (laughs) So part of loving people is not sponging off other people, not taking advantage of the loving generosity which characterises the fellowship there. We've got to understand that in the culture there, there's this system of patronage where it's like a, a dependence, where those without economic means rely on those with economic means to support them for handouts of money, food, etc. And in return, they honour them. They kind of gather at their house in the morning and line up and applaud them as they walk down their garden path and get into their car off to work. It was that kind of thing. And the more patrons you had, the higher your status was in, sorry, the more clients a patron had, the higher their status was in society. Look at me. My queue is 54 people long this week. That's how generous I am, by the way. It's that kind of thing. And so what was happening here is that there was the, the, some of the people in the church were reliant on, dependent on other people for handouts. That's the way that they'd lived. But what it means is that you get tied into a system of dependence where you're emphasising the things which are important to your patron, because if you don't, then you might lose your support. Well, that sounds like split loyalties, because actually our dependence is solely upon Jesus. And so what Paul instructs them to do is to live differently. He says, make it your ambition to live a quiet life. It means to step out of the public limelight. That's what it means in this context. So instead of lining up and applauding your patron, you kind of get on with your own work. You mind your own affairs. Not be concerned with someone else's status. And you work with your hands. Work for a living. Earn a wage. Rather than relying on handouts from this benefactor. Now that's not to undermine generosity. In our context, it's not to undermine the social welfare state, which is so crucial for people who are unable to work. But here, this was people who were being lazy, as we will see in chapter 5, being disorderly in the way they were, just lounging around at home and relying on this patronage system. But I wonder whether there are applications for us, and I haven't got time to explore this really, but, but applications for us in terms of, are there instances in our lives where 
we become dependent on others because, you know, there's kind of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type thing. You do this work for me and the next contract which comes in, you know, that kind of thing. You donate to my party and I'll get you a peerage. Yeah, I've not had that experience. But, um, but that kind of thing, you prove yourself, to, you know, you support me on trying to get this through and I'll, I'll, I'll put in a good word for you and you might get a promotion. That kind of thing, this sort of where we're reliant on someone else because we're beholden to them. We're doing something for the wrong reason. And Paul basically brings this whole argument full circle and says about that walk that you're doing. You know you're meant to walk and please God. Well, here you're to walk properly before outsiders. This is about the witness. It wasn't a great witness for the church to be filled with people who just rely on rich people to give them money. It's not going to work. This is about living a life which truly excels in honouring Jesus. And so his whole command here in this is about sanctification and it's about growing in love and holiness towards the brothers and ultimately towards God. I wonder if we could stand. I'll be honest, I don't really know how to finish this morning. But there's a, I mean, through the worship, there's a a clear emphasis on purity. I'd just like you to close your eyes and just draw near to the Father. Clear emphasis on purity this morning, on holiness, on a pursuit of Jesus. And for you, it might not be sexual immorality. But it might be. Just felt as I prepared this that maybe there was someone whose internet browsing history would be nothing to that they would want framed and put up on the wall. And if that's you, just deal with it now. Come before God, His grace is sufficient for us. His forgiveness knows no limits. But it might be another area of life that just as I've been talking, maybe even as we were responding to that song earlier about purifying ourselves, that God just underlined, said, deal with it, deal with it. There's no condemnation here, no condemnation, because this is the work of God's grace in us by his Holy Spirit. And for all of us, there is this growth in holiness, this sanctification, this looking ever more like Jesus. That's what we're being called to. That's what we're being called to. Father God, we thank you so much for all that you have done for us. For the way in which you lifted us from the pit, set us on a rock. The way you have transformed our lives the way that we are now known as sons and daughters of you thank you for the great salvation that you have done in us the forgiveness that flows from your blood on the cross and cleanses us from all our sins the fact that our sins are removed 
as far as the east is from the west, that you choose to remember them no more. Father, we thank you that we're declared righteous, that we're justified before our holy God. And we know, Lord, as well, that we're also a work in progress. And so, Father, just as this morning you may have underlined things, highlighted things in each of us as areas for growth, areas in which we can work with you in partnership with your Holy Spirit so we look ever more like you, Jesus. That's our heart. That's our desire. That on that day we will appear spotless and blameless before you as a bride adorned for her husband. Father, we thank you. We thank you. Father, I pray for each of us here that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each of us, that as we have decisions to make day by day by day about following you, about living sanctified lives, about increasingly looking like Jesus, about growing in holiness. Father, would you by your spirit empower us to do that? Well, we know we cannot do this in our own strength. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit's power on each of us. Lord God, would you pour it out? Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your people. Thank you. Thank you for what you've done, Lord. Amen. Amen.